0: Welcome to Punchboard Paradise, coming to you from the heartland of America in Omaha, Nebraska, where we discuss the world of tabletop gaming, the topics that affect the board game community, and give honest and fair reviews of the industry's hottest games. In episode 52, the Punchboarders talk to Cole Worley. Hey, everybody, I'm Clef. Hey, I'm Chad. And I'm Richie. All right, guys, so... We got an interview to do.
1: Yeah, Yeah. pretty good one.
0: I'm looking forward to this. I hope uh, we'll get some good information for the Punch Bunch. You know, some stuff coming up on Root and John Company. And then, uh, obviously, the big thing we'll be talking about is the PAX Premier Kickstarter. 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 Yeah, I mean, I am going to be jumping on that as quick as I possibly can. So, uh, for anybody who doesn't know much about that game, check it out. It is absolutely amazing.
1: Well, they don't want to hear us anymore. They just want to hear Cole now. They want to get to the Cole interview.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well... Well, wait a minute. Before we get there, we do want to talk about one really important thing, and that is, you know, is, is a Patreon that we have started. So if you're interested, you can just go to Patreon and just type in Punchboard Paradise, or we'll also put a link up in the Guild and in our in our Slack channel if you'd like to support us. So main reason that why we're doing this is we would like to upgrade our equipment. We would like to get a new mixer, uh, a new way to do, uh, like, kind of have guests for the drafts. And so- that's a main reason why we're doing this now. And look, we totally understand if
1: it's not in your budget right now, if you have other circumstances, we've, we've all been there before too. So it's just sort of a thing to let you know, because we've had people ask us what they can do to support the show. So if you can, and you're in a spot where you feel like you can, please feel free to visit the Patreon page. But if you can't, the other way that you can help us out is by talking to talking about us on social media or sharing it with your friends or giving us radio. All those things help expo- exp- uh, exposure for the podcast.
2: Or you can pick up a t shirt at punchboardparadise.threadless.com. And those t shirts look pretty sweet. We yeah. just got a new graphic design new, yeah. overhaul. We were lucky,
1: Aaron A. Wilson, he's at Internet's Magic on Twitter. And uh, he does he does great work. And incidentally, he also has a game coming out around May or June from Deepwater Games called Sovereign Skies. So we're going to be checking that out, too. But Aaron does great work. We're really proud of the new work that he did for us on our logo and the Punch Bunch logo on the T-shirts. Yeah. These look pretty sweet.
0: Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, you can get more than just T-shirts right at Threadless. I mean, you can get a hoodie. You, yeah. You get a... Little yeah, tank a little, top, little maybe a little crop top. Maybe I'm we get Chad crop top. to yeah. wear that yeah. and take a picture of that. <laughs> yeah. Like that. Maybe if we sell like fifty T-shirts, we'll make Chad wear that and put a picture up on that. That's the, right. One. Let's, let's like, just make it ten. Let's just lower the bar.
1: With a little, I'm get the you know little <laughs> hot stuff coming through Woo! on the back of the T-shirt. There too. we go. There you go. <laughs> all
0: right, all right, guys. Let's get to an interview.
1: We are lucky enough to be joined today by Cole Worley. He's the lead designer and developer at Leader Games. And he's designed such hits as Root and PAX Premier and Infamous Traffic, to name a few. Cole, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure.
3: Thank you for having me on.
1: Yeah, welcome. Well, as residents of the Midwest, you just recently moved. I mean, I know Indiana probably is technically the Midwest, but you just moved to the upper Midwest not too long ago. How are you adjusting?
3: I love it. So we i, I spent the last decade, um, I grew up in Indiana, but spent the last decade in Austin, Texas, uh, finishing my graduate work and working a little bit. And I—I I mean, it was strange. My wife and I—we didn't talk about moving, but we both just kind of started giving things away and packing things into boxes. <laughs> uh, like this, this unspoken, like I think we're done with Texas. Uh, and so when you know the job opportunity opened up in Minnesota, it's—it just. Seemed like an obvious move. I wanted my kids to know what four seasons were. I missed ice skating, uh, and I, I love it here. This is my this is my favorite state in the union. I am I am ha- I am so happily adopting all the Minnesotan quirks I can possibly gather.
1: That's great. In in my time up there, it's been really uh, sort of an active state. You know, there's so much to get out and do. And I think a lot of the residents there, you know, there's all those uh, hiking and biking trails up there, and and fishing and all that kind of stuff. So
0: I've heard they have some lakes up there too yeah just oh, yeah, a, yeah, few, yeah. a few of
3: them yeah. <laughs> oh no it's great i mean like in the summer i can bike to a city lake and hop in a little sailboat and spend the afternoon sailing and then bike back home and it's all you know there's beautiful public infrastructure and just that is such a foreign idea to do <laughs> to, to what life was like in texas so it's right. great i love minnesota and it has an excellent gaming scene Um, Yeah, it's really remarkable. The Twin Cities are great. So we're in St. Paul right now. I live in a little neighborhood called Matt Groveland, which is like a few blocks from Minneapolis. Uh, But it's very much like, you know, it's just kind of Midwest city life. Uh, it's, it's wonderful.
1: So did you settle in pretty quick as far as like, I know that, that you develop and play test a lot of games, obviously at leader, but do you
3: have your own game group? Did you find that relatively quickly? So I had, I have a few friends that I knew, um, that I had, you know, met kind of on board game geek and then at various cons and I play with them occasionally. And then I used to attend, um, I like to attend the first Minnesota, like, wargaming group uh, at the source whenever I can. But the past couple years, it's been tough to, like, maintain any kind of group. Um, I do a lot of playtesting through the week, and usually by the time I get home, I am – cooked, but <laughs> just yeah, thoroughly, yeah. thoroughly that, cooked. Yeah. So it's not, you know, I can't hardly complain, but it's, it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I have maybe four or five groups in the Twin Cities that I will sometimes, like, stop in by, play with, occasionally invite for play tests, but just the vast majority of my play is has tilted towards like the actual work of building games and then most of the gaming that i do with friends uh is like on tabletop simulator with you know my siblings or other groups and so those sort other games are still happening but they're more located at cons like when i go to board game bgg con i used to uh try to float between different groups and see people and try to make the rounds and now when i go to bgg con i go with my little troop of close friends, (laughs) and we just hole up in some corner, some quiet corner of the convention, and we play as much as possible in four days. And that's that's kind of where a lot of that extracurricular gaming comes. So do you and your wife still get time to play games then? Oh, yeah, totally. We, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like too much part of our daily practice to ever really go away. We used to, before we had kids, we played all kinds of stuff. Um, staples, like her favorite game is Agricola. And we actually, we, we play a very mean Agricola variant where we deal only one hand and it's face up and the first person to use the card gets it. Ooh, Ooh I like, like uh, that. It, it, the, the two player. Open handed game of Agricola is like Euro chess. It's the best thing in the world. Uh, and actually, even like Caverna, which is a game I don't care for too much, just because I think it's too resource rich, is actually dramatically improved by um, drafting n over seven number of rooms randomly. So that you start with yeah. an artificially constricted set of rooms to to build from, and it, it just provides a lot of tension. Um, so we used to play. I mean, everything we played antiquity. Um, Katie loves abstracts, so we play. I mean, it, it's funny she hadn't she wasn't super interested in war games, but then my friends when I got married bought us the gipf collection. Like all the ones that were published, And so we started playing those. We would just, we'd have one and we we would play it after breakfast before we went to work. Um, And, you know, it was like we had a new game each month and we just kind of slowly moved through them. And that like activated something in our playing where, you know, now she was like, hey, can we try Command & Color's Napoleonic's? That seems like a a a cool game. And I like want another (laughs) conflict game. So she finds like she really likes conflict games if they are... um, tactical like fundamentally tactical the okay. more strategic conflict games are less interested in um these days we have fallen very strangely in love with the arkham horror card game and it, nice. it is so outside of my wheelhouse like i've played several living card games i love netrunner but the co-op ones i've never liked uh but the arkham horror card game it reminds me of the kind of roguelikes i like like especially that case of cud where your player, I mean, you're just dying. Like you are you are picking up all of these uh, traumas and disabilities and uh, scars from all of your previous adventures. And you know, the moment you start a character, it's like taking in a pet. Like this thing is not going to last forever. <laughs> <Yep>. And <laughs> the, the, so I love that in, in Arkham, you know, you build a deck. And then as you complete missions, your deck gets both worse and better. And it's I find that the scenario design is like really, really sharp. I'm really just I'm just impressed by it. So we've been playing that kind of like every other night.
1: That's great. I mean, R- Richie has talked about it a lot. He and his wife play the GIF series a lot. And also, R- Richie, do you play Arkham Horror with your wife as well or
2: not yet? i have not shown her that yet. I've mainly been just playing that solo. But yeah, it, it is a fantastic game. And I am curious, what's the what's the favorite out of the GIF series?
3: Oh, I love Devon. That's my favorite yeah. one. It's so good it i mean all of them are quite smart and it's been nice like seeing i guess like last year maybe the year before when Shobu came out i thought you saw a lot more attention directed towards modern abstracts Mm -hmm. uh, because there's some great work happening in that like very 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 small (laughs) subfield of gaming i mean it's even more niche than wargaming um and I think all of them are, are quite good. Um, the zerts I love, uh, because it, it's all, it's, it does things that I wish checkers did better in terms of like how sophisticated you build. So, I mean, zerts, the way I usually would summarize zerts is like you are trying to engineer a trap for your opponent to fall into. And mm-hmm. then the traps get increasingly broke until you accidentally fall into your own trap. Um, and it, it's wonderful. Uh, it has some weird solvability problems once players get really good at it, but if you make the board bigger, then it just will blast your brain and you can get around that problem. Um, but Devon is, is so remarkable. I just, I love games with shrinking boards and I think Devon just does it better than, than most any game in that, in that genre.
2: Yeah, that's a fantastic one. And I love the, I just, I love games where setup is also part of the game as well. Mm-hmm. And you really have to think that out.
1: Well, so was Katie a gamer before you guys met? Or did she get more into games when you guys started courting?
3: We So we met, we were both directing this summer program for kids in Bloomington, Indiana. And she worked, we had worked at the school for a long time and had never met each other. I worked the mornings because I'm kind of a morning person. She worked the evening shift. And then we both got this like co-directorship for the summer. And we just started hanging out every day, constantly, all day. And then during that period, um we would play some Carcassonne during our lunch breaks, um, which I had brought by. And she she was a quick study on the stuff because she had, she had a bit of a gaming background, mostly in role-playing games. Um, so her brother um, taught her how to play d when she was really young. And they actually played like BD&D, um, which mm. e- even though like, I guess se- second edition would have probably been more current Or even third edition, when she was playing, her brother, who's quite a bit older than her, uh, introduced her to uh, basic Dungeons and Dragons with the the old red-covered books. And so, I mean, we we still have those books carting around. Um, And so, she had played a lot of D and D, and I'd played a little bit of it. And then it just kind of became, you know, we uh, I lived in a house uh, in those years where a lot of board games were played, and Katie would just kind of join in with those board games. And it was it was hard to you kind of never knew. It was a funny house. You kind of never knew. where the taste of the house was going to go so you know when dominion came out we all played dominion like crazy but like the next month uh or around that same time like i got a copy of the valley games edition of titan and we played the crap out of titan and so the, the, it just didn't really map onto any clean like here's your gateway game and now you're playing midway <laughs> euro and now you're playing a heavy euro like it was very um kind of all over the place we played tons of age of steam uh, and i remember um probably the, the first game uh, the first medium weight or heavy game that Katie played w- with us was container. And we, we were really, everybody was obsessed with container. We loved it. And we, we were playing a lot of container and she, she was just watching. She would just watch the games. And then eventually she was like, okay, I want to play this game. And I'm like, all right, well you need me to teach you. She's like, no, I know exactly how this game works. I've been watching <laughs> you guys play it for three weeks uh, because we were, we were college kids. So you, we would play like Sunday nights was our game day where we would play two or three games in a row. But because we all lived together, we would play games like almost nightly. I mean, I think I probably played like 60 games of Age of Steam in a year. Um, oh, wow. Like, wow. It was awesome. just, it was like watching TV. I mean, it was just the normal, Like we, the, you didn't have the the friction to like sit down and play was so low that you almost would just accidentally find yourself in a game.
1: Um, I love it. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> well, so if I had to ask which, which one of you is more competitive?
3: Ooh. Um, <laughs> i have a t- higher tolerance for losing because i do it more right? <laughs> like i just well and I'm, I'm a glutton for it when i learned was teaching myself how to play starcraft i um i just jumped and started laddering i didn't even know how the game worked i was just like well might as well just start laddering and i'll, I'll learn faster and right. so i lost my first like 100 games of starcraft 2 um and learned a lot, and then climbed up through the ranks to a, a quite a good competitive rank. But I like to me like losing is you learn from losing. Um, if, if you if you smash someone into a wall, then you don't really you don't really learn anything. Um, and so I, for that reason, when I play games, I have to kind of like force myself to play competitively because my default is like let's explore the space, let's just see let's see where this goes. The well played game, like you know, we're not. If I start losing, I'm not gonna like. Do something dramatic unless i'm in a context where that's going to be expected for me so my my default play style is a little more exploratory now that includes like being really mean and like really pushing on the game's levers but i think katie probably is more sort of like baseline competitive um she wants to win and she often does she she, (laughs) if, if, if we play um I think it's Czar is the one that like my win rate is probably like 10% of my games with Katie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that kind of segues nicely into a question that I've been wanting to ask you since I saw the video address uh, online, but you last year, you talked at the game developers conference and you had discussed, you'd given a talk about the idea of King making and kind of how more designers shouldn't avoid this necessarily. And that uh, some of the gamers aversion is to, is due to fairness basically Uh, it was just a really interesting talk and so i i wanted to ask you kind of besides root which was one of the designs that you were referencing what other designs incorporate this kind of philosophy
3: oh designs that i've done yeah well either one actually so i mean it's that that talk has kind of a strange prehistory so i i think i i have a I spent a long time uh, in the Academy and I think it marked me a little bit. And so I get, I kind of can't help myself from, I don't know, poking around when I see like certain things that keep getting alluded to on forums. And one of the things I noticed many years ago um, was that there was this weird, um, I think it's an aesthetic sensibility or maybe an aesthetic aversion to, um, to King making in games. People were like, well, this is, this is just bad design. And I, I I thought, okay, that's a little strange. I mean, there's a game called Kingmaker, like this is, and also <laughs> if you play any game that is interactive, um, you're probably not gonna win because you were so smart. And one of the things, whenever I teach Chicago Express to, to new players, which is a game I love playing and I love watching people come to learn it. Um, one of the things I always tell new players is that uh, one of you is going to win and it's not going to be your fault. And you have (laughs) to like, really like let that settle in your bellies that like a lot of this game is about um, capitalizing on the mistakes that other players are making. And it, you know, the winner is something we all create together, whether or not we like it. Um, And I think that there's this funny shift that's happened where, players, uh, have come to expect that games are going to be judgmental. They're going to be about who, you know, played, played the best, like as if, as if we all have ELOs or something and we're, we're climbing up a ladder. Uh, and, and so what happened was when I, when I started working at Leader, I, w- I went to a protospiel in Minnesota, which was amazing. I had never been to a, 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 show like that. And I'm kind of, I've been in a weird spot because like, I, I do games professionally now, but I didn't come up through the ranks. I came from like a weird side community and got pulled into this industry. Some people I know who work in this industry, they went to protospiels, they went to all the design conferences, they're card carrying members of the Ludology podcast. They've been like studying this stuff. And what I found when I started interacting with that broader group is that there were rules and best practices. About what is a good game design and what's an amateurish game design, and as I started talking to people about these best practices, it was clear that like fairness, and and the notion that a game can't have king making these were like central pillars of quote unquote good design. Right. And this seemed like to me patent nonsense because fairness. I mean, like like most concepts you assume that it like traces back to biblical times or something, but it's in fact like 80 years old or like a hundred (laughs) years old. Um, And so when I just started like historicizing, so so the whole thought, the the whole concept for the GC talk was uh, I'm just gonna historicize fairness and then think about like what we do when we make a game that is fair and what are the ideological implications of these games. And I'm not gonna bother to rehash the whole talk, but the basic, thrust of it is fairness is a pretty new concept has a lot to do with notions of sportsmanship and a lot of that is tied up in um western morality and imperial politics and like creating rules that don't necessarily reflect the world or stories even but instead reflect a certain way that we would want the world to be arranged which is especially convenient for the people who are trying to rule and oversee that world Um, so this, this thought resonated really nicely with me because fairness is not, I have two things that I'm, I'm not not—I'm never really worried about when I'm working on games, and one of them is fun, and the other one is fairness. I just don't care about them as concepts. I think that if you optimize for those things, uh, you produce games that have problems and that aren't as interesting as they could be. Um, and so the one of the, the places where I, I poked on this a lot is in John Company. So John Company was built around a really um, basic mechanical concept, which is... In uh, most Euro games, and I mean, I'm not derogating them at all. I love, I love Agricola. I love Euro games. But in most Euro games, uh, you have to go from a moment where you're generating uh, cash to generate victory points. There's a, there's a, there's an inflection point. Uh, Puerto Rico is probably the best example of this. Like, are you turning your goods into money, or are you turning them into victory points? Right. And there's always a point where you have to say, like, okay, I have enough money. I'm going to now turn my engine to the victory point engine. And, uh, the whole game is, I mean, you know, even a game like race for the galaxy has some of this many euros have, have this drama that they're trying to play out. And with John company at the very basic level, I said, okay, I want players to not control when that inflection point happens. So you control a lot of things. You have a lot of power in John company, but when the game says, Hey, now you're scoring victory points. You have to do it because that you may never get a scoring opportunity again. And the reason for this, uh, mechanically and thematically, is that what will happen is uh, a scoring moment in John Company is a rare and beautiful thing, but you're probably broke when it happens. So you have to raise money from somewhere, and then you, re- you end up having to raise money from other players. And then that puts you in their debt, and the game's entirely about, like, leverage. Um, and it's quite unfair, Usually it's like, oh, I just spent all my money doing this good thing, but now all my people are retiring and I don't have any capital, so I'm going to get no victory points. But that unfairness, that knot in your stomach is going to lead you to plead with the other players and then make obligations to them. And it's those obligations which are going to like power the game and transform the incentives of everything. Um, and so when I was approaching that GSE talk, um, personally in my own design practice, Uh, being unfair had been a great kind of, well, that there was a lot of like cool, interesting concepts down there. And it wasn't to say that, you know, all games should be unfair, but just, uh, many types of games are well suited to that kind of thinking.
1: So, and the interaction that happens when that unfairness arises is what you're saying,
3: right? That's exactly it.
1: Great. It, one of the uh, one of the other things that I've heard you talk about before is that you really kind of favor expressive games or expressive gameplay that kind of allows gamers to really get in the sandbox so to speak and play according to their preferences or desires at least to some level so aside from some of your games that you've talked about what are what are some other games out there by other designers that you feel do this well do this expressive design well
3: so I, I've been kind of working on this as a concept and it's the kind of thing I probably need to like put some words to but I have this this notion that um, if you map out from the design perspective, if you think about the paths to victory, and you try to think about how the player's connection to the paths to victory, um, some games uh, it's pretty one to one, right? Like I'm gonna, I'm just gonna keep using Puerto Rico references, but like I'm gonna draft the captain role to ship my goods. Um, the expressive part of Puerto Rico is where the turn order. I think turn order in Puerto Rico is quite expressive because it. You can make decisions about adjusting that turn order, which have interesting implications that don't necessarily map onto a particular path. And so when I'm thinking about expressive games, I'm thinking about um, every mechanism in the game as allowing you to it's like a verb or something or a noun. And then how how uh, how communicative, how expressive is that is the game. Uh, in, in the sense of how much can we tell each other? What what is the storytelling potential of our interaction, if we assume that our only interactions are uh, mediated through the game space? So I'll give you like a uh, two quick examples on that, or maybe three. Okay, so um, Pandemic, great game, not very expressive. You it's there it's what one to one often what you have to do, and then you're trying to manage this chaos. Um, There's not a lot of room for winks and cleverness in Pandemic, Uh, and it's a great game. It's a fabulous game. Um, Hanabi, which is a simpler game, is much more expressive because a single move can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts. And so even though the game is very restrictive on your speech uh, in the sense that you kind of can't, barely uh you almost can't talk um there's actually all this room for things that can be said and uh there's another game called the called the quiet year which i i really admire and it um it's a storytelling game but it's also a storytelling game that very strictly regulates speech and it is quite it's beautiful the the, the stories it can tell and then um, as an example of, of of another game i think is I think it's starting to get a little bit more um, press, which is excellent. But one of the most interesting, expressive games out there is um, First Contact, which have have any of you played First Contact? No, I'm not familiar with it. Okay. This, I'm I'm happy to be giving you this treat. First Contact is incredible. Uh, It's a weird little Russian game from Cosmodrome. um, And I... I played it and loved it so much that I bought a very expensive copy from the Ukraine. But now it's widely available, and I did not regret it at all. So um, the way First Contact works is um, if you've seen the arrival, it's kind of modeled after the arrival. Okay. Uh, but basically, you are trying – there's a grid, like a code name style grid of objects. and you're uh picking arrangements of objects and then the aliens are the alien players are writing a message of what that means in their language which they have a like a a big list of vocabulary in these funny little um glyphs so then you have to be like okay well these symbols i wonder if that means cat or maybe if that means like alive or hot or heavy and then the so the, the humans get chances to guess and then the aliens have to write sentences and get the humans to guess what the aliens want the humans to bring to them. And what what's happening is players are building a language within the game to then play a game of code names within the game.
1: That sounds fantastic. It wow, is wow.
3: it's inc- <laughs> it is incredible, and it, I love it because when it, whenever I play it with people, the first few turns they are so frustrated. Mm. They're like, "This is." This is hard and it's kind of a weird game because it's sort of a party game, but also it's like it's hard and deep, Um, but it is kind of a party game. And what will happen is for the first 10, 20 minutes, people are like, I don't get it. This is silly. I'm just taking notes. And then there's like a moment where an alien makes a connection to a human player and it's like, okay, we're talking the same language. Every time it happens, it is divine. I played a game with with um, some staff members and Kyle Farron and, uh, some, you know, the, the leader crew at Origins. And afterwards, Kyle was like, I mean, we were like gushing about this like transcendent experience we'd had, which th- those kinds of things happen in gaming. And I I have rarely found a game that produces them with the regularity of um, of First Contact. It's really special. So, yeah, that's what I'm, when I'm talking about. Expressive games and talking about finding a way to make the act of play be something closer to a speech act
1: that is really cool i want you to know that richie was listening but he just bought the game so yeah just, you saw <laughs> are welcome Drone. thank you there you go
3: right
1: <laughs> well okay so along those lines and maybe you can give me a, a, another answer but first contact might be one of them but just out of curiosity what's a what's a game name a game you wish that you designed
3: Ooh. um Ooh, let's see. Okay. I'll give a couple. Um, okay. I, so, well, obviously First Contact. Love it, love it, love it. <laughs> um, so, a game I wish I would have designed, but I'm like, I also owe a lot to. So, you yeah, know, this is a chicken egg. Sure. Uh, can't be my own father problem. But I love Maria. Mm. I think the game is stunning in its brilliance and its elegance. I played a lot of Frederick. And, I mean, Frederick and Maria... Both, whatever, I, it's amazing. Uh, great, great game, and I, I think a lot of, a lot of root's design prompts—the things that would lead root to be root—started with me like looking at Maria and being like, this game so beautifully folds all of these concepts into what is essentially like a positional card game, a positional bidding game. And I want to try to do something that clean. And I think Maria is just incredible. Um, another one, uh, this is a bit of a weird a weird answer, but um, there's a game by Looney Labs called Zendo. Oh yeah. Which yeah. is so beautiful and simple. And I just, I respect the hell out of it. And every time I play it, I think like this, this is actually, this game is just kind of perfect. And it's, I love Zendo so much that we, like, if I'm on a hike with my kiddos or something, we'll like play Zendu just with rocks and stuff. It's so, it's so beautiful. It's like, it is one of those, when you think about people making things and how long they can survive through history, I think about Zendu as I'm like, this is a, this is a transcendent game. This is a game that someone could play in 200 years. No one's going to be playing my stuff in 200 years, (laughs) but like Zendu, I could see it. I could just see the, the long tail of Zendu.
1: All right. Well, I, I want to ask you because this is your newest, this is your newest baby, your newest Kickstarter, in, at least, um, to to be out there already. Oath is the is the big leader games uh, game that just finished up Kickstarter not too long ago, and it. I mean, forgive me if I'm I'm wrong, but it kind of seems to be sort of your take on among other things a legacy game that isn't really a legacy game because you said before that you kind of dislike legacy games because they're mostly a scripted experience that sort of lends itself less to that expressive design stuff that we just talked about. So, how did you how did you get around that or or what ways in the back door did you sort of get to that persistent gameplay without doing that legacy here's your scripted narrative just watch it happen design
3: legacy games to me um are pretty good television but like not great games and i i've i've liked the ones that i've played but they have like when they're well written they can be quite good but they they run into a kind of funny problem where I feel like you know they're on they're built on the chassis of a pre of previously existing game so like Pandemic Legacy is the my my touchstone one um, and then it kind of has a little bit of a choose your own adventure a little bit of a tabletop feel but like ultimately the thing that is surprising about it is or not the thing that's surprising but the thing that pulls me in is not the gameplay as much as it is the following of the story. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I've had So I've had weird feelings about this where I like the idea of campaign games. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons I'm so attracted to the Arkham Horror card game these days. Mm-hmm. I, I like the idea of, of campaign-driven games and watching my, my characters fall apart. Um, and I, I like tabletop games. I mean, I like tabletop RPGs quite a bit. I don't play any right now, but I, I used to. And so there was always a funny, I'm like, okay, so... Legacy board games happened, but Rob Davio brilliantly sketched out this like way of doing that kind of game design. And then every legacy game, and this is partly because Rob Davio is so prolific, but every legacy game I've I've really seen kind of like sticks close to the path. And even though the even ones that are a little more uh, wide eyed, like King's Dilemma, are also kind of still working in that same idiom. And so, for a long time, I was I had been kind of thinking about uh, this space, and I noticed a funny thing when people would talk about. So, like during the roots development, I was listening to a lot of playtesters talk about their games, and they were they were having these conversations as if. Their games were sequential, which of course they're not. Like every root game, if it starts like at zero, you know, at the zero root year, every root game rewinds back to zero root year or whatever. Um, But when people would talk about them, they'd be like, "Oh yeah, there was that. Like you won as the cats like two games in a row. It was crazy." And then this thing happened, and it was as if they were doing like as if they were playing a campaign, but without actually any rules that were. Enabling it. So what, what I took from this was that when we think about our experiences with games, we are wanting to arrange them in a mm-hmm. kind of causal chain, even though we we, we quite possibly can't. I mean, the, the design isn't asking for it, but we, we kind of want there's an impulse to do this. And then I, there are a bunch of kind of other kind of disconnected thoughts. So one of them is I have a longstanding like, dissatisfaction with Civ games, which I think most Civ games are... Um, very tight, they're just grafted from uh, Sid Meier's Civilization. Like, Through the Ages is a brilliant design, but it's also like just a pretty clean adaptation of, like, hey, what if Sid Meier's Civilization was a drafting game? Oh, you get something like Through the Ages. Um, and then, you know, there are other adaptations like the Fantasy Flight Civ, which is a little more one to one of an adaptation with a video game. And I studied a lot of history. Um, in graduate school and that history, like, is just not like that um it's just like it's so it's it's a very like weird um gamey kind of like late 19th century way of thinking about the past and so all of these if it seems like these disconnected thoughts are disconnected it's because they are i mean i was when i was thinking about the idea that would become oath i was kind of a, compiling all of these notes about like okay i want a sieve game but it's kind of like needs to be in the middle distance and i wonder if you could build a game that lent itself to campaign play uh, and kind of evolved with the player styles, and then I was, uh, you know, I was playing a lot of packs for Furiana, which I'm always playing, and like watching how if you slowly draft a new deck over several games, like it's as if you can watch like a culture change, even though that isn't really happening. So I had all these disconnected ideas, and it wasn't even really clear that it was a single game, if that makes any sense. And I also, like I, I tend to have the the position when I'm working on games that um an idea doesn't have to be a game i don't start a game project and say like okay this is gonna be a game (laughs) instead i think like is this a book it's an article is this like a talk do i want to ask my friends who are better writers than me to do something like if this is a good idea like it doesn't have to be a game like i I want it 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 should be like the game should be the proper form for the thing like it, it it should it should want to exist in that in that Mm -hmm. framework and so um, what happened with oath then is i started thinking about as a concept um like if i really wanted to make well actually the better way to say it might be there's this i love 10-hour games i love them uh it's one of my favorite like genres if i can just sit down and like play the napoleonic wars or play here i stand Like, I want to do that. Like, one of my favorite 18xx's is 1817. I want to give it the day. There are just things that happen between like hour four and hour seven <laughs> in a game that are amazing.
1: <laughs> well, uh, and especially with 1817, right? Like that's crazy stock manipulations and all that kind of stuff. And you've got to have hours for that.
3: Yeah, and it just like, it doesn't, it's funny because uh, one of the reasons why people have struggled to create a simplified 18xx game is because many of these narratives just take hundreds of actions in several hours to like properly unfurl. You know, it's not – it's like you're not going to have a short version of, like, the ring cycle. You need the full thing. (laughs) Um, So, what I was thinking about, though, is how – and it only – this is a a bit of a a weird, like, hindsight justification because I didn't realize this particular line until months after oath existed. But the – I had this realization, um, without having the words for it, that basically, if I looked at the past 30 years of game design, it was all about compression. Like, even go back to Talisman. Talisman is all about, like, hey, your fun D&D experiences, what if we put that in a three-hour board game? (laughs) And then HeroQuest was like, hey, remember that dungeon crawl that took, like, two hours or three hours? What if we could do that in 60 minutes or 90 minutes? So, you know, it's not that this is, like, new to the post catan era, but, like, Eclipse – is part of a proud tradition of compress games, get them in that 90 minutes. Right. And for a Civ game, that creates this weird kind of like fast forward Benny Hill aesthetic. (laughs) Um, And so I thought like, okay, what about, let's forget compression, what about segmentation? What if you can build a game that remembers how it was played so that it easily packs away and then can be unpacked to hold a lot of the memory? Um, so that players can all you know be participating in the sequence and then I you know as soon as I started having these thoughts I was like okay this actually plugs into a lot of things I've been thinking about like in terms of um, the print culture around board games and for me I grew up um, in kind of a weird board game drought where like it was before uh, it was like after Catan but before like Puerto Rico, I guess maybe is the best way to describe that period okay. where a lot of the games that I, that I played, um, were secondhand. I would like find a copy of, um, I don't know, breakthrough or, or acquire like a garage sale. <laughs> and because, because there was like, it was, in, it was in the late nineties, like the whole industry had been hollowed out. I remember when battle cry came out, it was like a revelation because it was a new game that played really well. And I had been like playing these weird secondhand copies of Tactics 2 that were missing half their pieces. (laughs) Um, And so I was thinking about like, okay, wouldn't it be cool if, if there was this game that could evolve with the play and like some kid in 30 years like finds a copy in their uncle's closet, like I found many of my first games. But that game like held the experiences more because when I, when I would go through my, my uncle's old war games, there would be little notes and stuff like, you know, a little like, oh, is this, in, like, is this an order sheet from diplomacy or some like weird, they were like playing with secret messaging and like a, their copy of Chattanooga or something. <laughs> and um, I was like, oh, it had all this history packed into it, but the game didn't support any of that history. And so it was just kind of like forgotten. And so when I was thinking about oath, I was like, okay, what about a game That just in concept, uh, I can play 10 games and y'all could play 10 games and we could trade copies and our copies would be different, but not in any like permanent way, not in any like we're not ripping each other's cards up. But the game is broad enough that maybe it could have grown into like a thousand or two thousand or ten thousand different kinds of games just based on the decisions that people were making when they played it. Uh, actually that line of thinking was like the source of my nightmares for like a year because, um, most games as they approach, uh, the end, uh, they end right before the wheels fall off the engine. So like if you've ever played age of steam and you make the mistake of accidentally going a turn too long, uh, the game is very stupid it's a very very good <laughs> game but it's like oh right. we're all now too too rich and we accidentally were playing on the like three player timer instead of the five player timer or something and like right. oh that's why we're all just stupid rich and this game doesn't even really work anymore so a lot of game designs are built in such a way that like once the engines generate enough power the whole game just kind of like becomes meaningless um, and so working on this design I had to think about like okay how could I make the game? expressive enough that it could change and change in meaningful ways? And how could I make it so that it wasn't degenerate enough that it wouldn't just completely fall apart? And so there were all these like weird high concept requirements for this design. That had to be met before I even got to like the work of development, which is one reason why the game took so long to cook. That's a very long, winding answer, but hopefully it no, gives but you a it's, sense it's, of the scope of the project.
1: It's absolutely interesting, and I can see. I mean, knowing that now, seeing, the, hearing you talk about the bones that it's built on, I can see what the problems. You always talk about. It's interesting. You always talk about when you talk about games. You say the question or the problem that this game is getting at, and uh, that that's fascinating as far as as
3: far as Oath is concerned. Uh, I, so I, I can actually I can give one to just just to to bring it down a register. I can give one really sure. simple um, Example of how this would translate just for people who are interested in the design component How this Absolutely. would translate how these big questions translate to practical design questions. Okay, so um, You need to uh, have the, the a You need to have uh, if the game is powered by a deck and you want the deck to be expressive and reflective of the game that's being played, then the deck needs to change. Well, how much should it change? I don't know. Let's say it changes 10% of of its contents. That's a reasonable number, maybe eight, maybe 12, whatever. So something around there. All right. So if you have a deck that's changing 10%, um how many cards should be in that deck? Well, uh, that that depends on a lot of other things, but if you also have the requirement that you want history to be lossy, and this was very important to me. When I was pitching it to Kyle, I said, hey, I want it to be, something cool should happen, but there's a good chance you won't even understand the implications of what you did for a game or two. So now we have a deck that is changing 10% each game, but only half of the cards are being used each game. So now everything has to work. And so like, okay, so we have like those numbers and then we start thinking about like, well, if only half the cards are being used and 10% is changing, um, how many different possibilities do we need? And we say, okay, well, let's say there's six suits and each suit has um, like, I don't know, 10, we'll make the math easy. Like each suit, uh, we want to have 30 cards in each suit. Right, so now we've got six times 30, all those cards are out. And so if we want to make that deck thicker, we have this like archive of cards that could be deployed that is then multiplying out. So after all of that like math and thinking about like what you can actually physically put in a box gets worked out, we end up in Oath with like eh, 56 card deck. And you know, maybe what is it? It's six cards get changed from game to game. Um, but that means all of the fun stuff I want to do, I have to do in like 20 cards. Right. Which means despite how giant the game is, it also needs to work with like just a few more cards than are in Love Letter. And so, like, this is just a place where that, the, all those high concept ruminations, which can sound so, so, so pretty and so fun, uh, create real design headaches, headaches. Because, like, in, in something like Pax Sumir, the market velocity and the amount of cards that go through is, is, it's, it's huge. And a lot of, a lot of the way the game handles its, like, pacing and the way, and, uh, who has the initiative is determined by the churning of this market. But that market is churned because the game has, you know, 60 to 80 cards or so in that deck. And that, or not usually not that many, but around there. And that in the course of a game, you're going to see 75% of the cards. PAX Premier wouldn't work if the card base had to be as constricted as it is an oath. Okay, now now you can ask me your other question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, what, one thing that I know that our listeners would, would come at me with pitchforks with if I didn't ask it. Everybody wants to know what's next for Root, because obviously that's a that's a huge design. Uh, people are still really interested in that. You know, you've talked about how many people get together just weekly to play Root, more Root, more Root. So what's what's next?
3: So Root is uh, it's, it's amazing. It is like it's been such a um, I don't know, just a straight blessing for us and for our studio. I mean, it's allowed us. Patrick, when, when he hired me, he had this idea for what a game studio could be. And then Root has allowed us, so like Root was kind of like our test project, but it also is like enabling us to run our game studio uh, very differently. And so and I, and I, it's worth before I say what, what's next, talking a little bit about like the thing that we built together, which is, um, so Root has no royalty. It's a it's a very different game than any game. So you go to a game, you know, store. Uh, most of those games uh, they were either built in the kind of corporate model, like a Hasbro game, or uh, they were built on the small publisher model, like a Stonemeyer game, which involves royalties and things like that, uh, and a lot of contract work. Uh, Root is different. Root is all almost all by itself. I can I can hardly name a couple companies that use the model we use, which is everybody's full time. And there we have no uh, royalty structure for our games. Instead, everyone who is on staff is sort of like paid the root dividend. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, and we, you know, we try to structure things so that like we have benefits and that we're all kind of like in the same pay grade. There's variation, of course, just depending on position experience and that kind of stuff. But Most game companies, I would be drawing like a huge royalty from root, but it doesn't work that way. It like it gets centralized at the company and then split up. And that enables us to design uh, very slowly and to design um, and and to to throw away a lot of games. So I threw away like eight versions of oath or nine before I got to the 10th version, which Mm. is the version that we're doing. And these were designs that I made on company time that we tested. And I was like, I don't think it's good enough. And I pitched in the trash. And so, and we have just because we have a good core audience, and we know that they're probably going to follow us. I can do things like delay things and say, "Look, I want the art to be better. We're going to delay it." I'm not people. I'm not. We're not building things to meet a certain release timeline line we instead are building things that we th- that we want to exist and to kind of live in the world. So when it comes to Root and thinking about Root's future, it's an interesting question. And I think the board game market is very funny because selling a few thousand copies is quite a good thing. And that can be like a hit. I mean, I think about all the games I did for Phil, which I was very happy with how they did, and even Premier. Uh, those were all hits for me and we sold just a few thousand copies. Um, yeah. But the market is a funny thing and there are these ledges And so, like, you know, maybe a giant success is selling 10,000 copies of a game. Maybe a giant success is selling 50 or 100. And what was happening previously, and I don't want to get too political, but I I think what was happening previously is uh, the reason why most board game companies look the same way. It's because if you do get a hit, um, that money goes into the designer's pocket and it goes into the publisher's pocket. Mostly into the publisher's pocket. And so the people who are deciding company policy have an incentive in keeping the structure the same way. But because we have a hit and suddenly that money's getting divided up, we have things like a horizon for working on games that is very, very long. Like we could just, I could work on Oath for two more years, we'd be fine. Um, we don't feel that rush, but it's because that money is being sort of like protected and spread out. So when we think about root, one of the things I told Patrick is to do the development right, um, every new faction we add is requires exponentially more testing than the previous factions. So mostly expansions are, tend to be pretty easy to develop because you already always have existing conditions. That isn't the case for root. Each expansion, is hard to make and will make future expansions even harder. So we, um, you know, for the Underworld expansion, in addition to all of our usual testing, we actually hired people full time to come in from the Twin Cities to work for about a week, week and a half and to just play the game. And they came in and I gave each of the, I assigned groups randomly, gave them little clipboards and they had to play six games in seven hours or something. And Richie wants to know how he gets yeah, that so, job. Yeah, he, he definitely moving, had the look uh, of to
2: Minnesota oh, this year. Oh, yeah.
3: Yes. No, yeah. <laughs> By all means. If you are if you are in the cities when these things happen, you just need to send me a DM. and I will get you. <laughs> all on. right. Um, and it, you know, so we, we, it doesn't pay great. It pays, you know, 10 bucks an hour. I think is what we paid last time. But you are just playing root all day. And
2: that, that's, it's, that's payment enough.
3: <laughs> it, it, it's funny because we always time it with like the end of semesters so that we can pull students who are like in between jobs. Um, And one of the things that we found, one of the things I loved about this was, uh, you know, during the orientation, last time we did this, I said, okay, you know, how many people have played root? And like some people raise their hand and I'm like, Oh, how many you have played it more than twice or three times. And w- one person played it root five times. And I was like, ah, cool. So like you're pretty, you would feel like you're pretty experienced with root. And he's like, Oh yeah, totally. I'm, i I think I'm pretty experienced at the game. And I'm like, here's the thing. You don't know anything about the game. I was like, by the end of this day, everyone here is going to be as experienced as you are right now. <laughs> and so the very first day of testing, they play about five games and uh, all that data is junk because they don't know what they're doing. Um, but it, it, it gets them into it. And we actually will do adjustments like, oh, all the cat players are underperforming. Let's get them together and have like strategy talk because we really like, we do usability trials and stuff to measure like groupthink problems and all that stuff. But for the tests that we do, paid tests, these are balanced tests and we want players playing as well as possible. Um, and once they, I mean, It's so funny, and and I think for people who have, uh, who tend to go deep and to play one game a lot, they uh, it's amazing how the playtime comes down. Because like root for for some groups is a three or four hour game, uh, but if you play it with regularity, it pretty quickly gets under two hours, and if you play it a lot, it's an hour. Uh, where they're like there are no rules, questions, and you you understand how all the factions work, and you just you move through it. So, you know, people come to the office, and we say, all right, you need to play six games a day at least. Hmm. And, they, and we give them their clipboards, and they go off to the races, and they play, 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 and they record data. Then we have debriefs, and it's a lot of work. So when it, when it comes to the future route after this experience, uh, we were really happy with how the Underworld expansion turned out. Uh, some of my favorite stuff in Root is in that box. Uh, and so I had a meeting with Patrick about the future route. And I said, like, okay, my key takeaway is when we do the next expansion, we're going to need two weeks. And then if we do an expansion after that, we might need four weeks of this type of testing in addition to other kind of testing just because the number of combinations we have i have a little a python script i run that will generate all of the possible uh, faction combinations and then i review this like you know this thousand combination list and we'll circle the ones that i think might be problematic and then we'll, we'll put those into our testing um are, you know, are to be tested list. And then we need to make sure that we run all those combinations twice, and that we also need to run them in such a way as they're also testing the different decks and the different maps. So it very quickly becomes like a complete headache. So what I told Patrick was that I felt like we had maybe four to six factions left, that if we really wanted to do, we can do maybe that much more. Um, but it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, so currently I'm on deck for the next expansion, which I'm going to work on after oath. And, um, the expansion is, um, I'm hoping to build, There are going to be three new factions, maybe four. And, uh, my, my, my loose sense of the factions right now is I want, uh, an invading army, which is going to be kind of like the prequel marquee. Uh, and have to deal with a uh, bureaucrat at home and justifying, you know, troop supplies and that kind of stuff. It'll be a little more war game-y. Cool. And then I want a, uh, a governing faction that is in civil war. So it's a kind of a schizophrenic mm-hmm. player that you have to sort of deal with. So a little bit like what the Eerie would look like if they actually won. And then what, 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 what the next generation of Eerie would look like. Um, I would like to do one that looks a little bit like what the lizards would be if they won. Uh, Which is to say, like, life within a kind of theocracy. And the, the, the idea with that is there will be certain laws that they will have to put in that players have to obey. And then you kind of work within that framework. I love that idea. Uh, And then I I have a weird faction that is an insurgent-style faction that exists in the warriors of the other factions, and you have double loyalty pieces. There are production reasons why that one is very hard. I'm like, seeing if we can get, like, little rubber sashes for the meeples or something, I don't know. (laughs) Um, But And, and like, you know, any one of these factions, heck, all these factions could die in testing, and then I can go back to the drawing board. But right now, that's a little bit of the space that we're doing, and then we have some other stuff that is... Not exactly under wraps. It's just too early that if I say anything about it, people get excited and they'll be really sad and we have to kill it. Understood. Uh, but Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the direction Root is probably going in. That
2: sounds awesome. That's, that's things to look forward to. And real quick, bonus question, because I know it was announced, I think, in August. And I don't know if you have anything to do with the digital side of it, but uh, where is that at as far it's, as the... Uh,
3: I don't know when it comes out. So Direwolf is doing the Root digital... Um, Uh, adaptation. It is so cool. Uh, I just saw... It it looked really good. uh, At PAX East this past week, or a few weeks ago, I guess by the time of airing, um, a lot of people were posting videos of it. It looks awesome. It is a very... um, very fulsome i mean direwolf makes great adaptations and they've mm. really they've really um swung for the fences here um and so that should be out pretty. i think soonish maybe like next quarter or the quarter after i'm not sure exactly but i do know okay. that they're making good progress and that like the alpha build's done and they're probably in some kind of beta testing right now
2: all right cool that sounds good we did our
1: top 50 games just a, a few episodes ago and uh Pax Pamir, no surprise, was definitely on the list of everybody's (laughs) and... And, and Clef, when he talked about the game, he specifically said, you know, you guys got in on that Kickstarter and I'm, I'm now, now that I played it, cause I didn't know if it was a game I'd like or not. Now that I played it, I am really sad that I didn't get in on that Kickstarter, but now we're, we're hearing about you releasing this Kickstarter, right? Like very soon.
3: Super soon. So yeah, uh, it will have gone live on uh, kind of last week, I guess. So like March 10th, we're going live and we'll be up for three weeks. Um it so it, it's a funny thing Drew and I were originally going to yoke the premier reprint to John Company. So actually I should back up. We didn't realize the demand would be as high as it is. Uh, we just didn't know I am naturally a very cautious person. Um, when it comes to my own work uh, with every root print run I have guessed very wrong about how many copies <laughs> you needed uh, thankfully I don't make those decisions so I you know don't blame me for for scarcity directly um, <laughs> blame yourself um, <laughs> so with with root or sorry with, um, with, with packs um, drew and I I with every project I do I approach the project as if, It will be my last game project, which sounds very pessimistic and morbid, but I'm really just, you know, uh, the entertainment industry is a fickle thing. Tastes change. I'm kind of lucky that I have a, a large enough audience right now that I can kind of do the stuff I want to do, but it could all go away tomorrow. Um, so, you know, with Oath, one of the reasons why Oath is like what it is, is because I went to the team and was like, hey, we have a great staff artist. We have a great development team. Let's make the most insane game we could possibly imagine. Like, what is the most ambitious, wild, sprawling project that we think we have the best competitive advantage for building? Okay, let's do that game. Uh, and then if everything goes belly up, at least we made the cool game. So with Premier, Drew and I had this mentality of like, this is our dream game. This is a game we've all like, this is the shape we've always wanted PAX Pamir to, to look like and who knows what will happen. Mm. So we were we were quite overwhelmed with the initial response to the game and then doubly overwhelmed with the response to the Kickstarter and then doubly overwhelmed with the response to the game itself. And it was clear that we should have printed more. And we were also in a funny spot because I like taking my time and uh, John Company, the reprint of John Company was uh, not being pokey, but like I just wanted to do it really well. And so I thought, okay, well, we have this gap where I don't want to do John Company till the summer, but also people really need Premier now. But Premier is a very, very, very expensive game for us to make. It's just, it's very, I mean, as you might imagine, it's expensive. There's a reason why a lot of games don't look like that. Um, And what happened was we had all of our language partners for Premier organize a print run in the spring to time it for Essen. And so we thought, oh, well, we can get on that. And, you know, it's, um, I, so I asked Anya at Kickstarter, I said, hey, you know, we're ch- we're, it's, it's the same game, but we are changing some things about the physical production, just some small things. Is that an okay idea for a Kickstarter? And Anya said, oh, yeah, of course, that, that, that looks great. And so we're doing this kind of like just premier Kickstarter and people can get the coins. And then um, the only uh, component change really is the ruler tokens, which were laser cut, which look really good when they're painted, um, were kind of problem components. Um, They're they're cut slightly unevenly. Some of them are, Uh, we had a big like high error rate on them. So we're just gonna replace those with wooden disks with the screen printed uh, symbols on them. Which will be like a little easier to read, and then if you if you desperately want those, we will sell you them at cost. <laughs> like it's, it's nice. not a cool. it's not a it's not a big it's not a big issue. Um, right. I actually really like my engraved ones, but I paint them up nice. Um, so, but but essentially, it's the it's the same deal. So like you're gonna get the same price on the, on the Kickstarter. We're just doing a little run, uh, and our hope with this like this is a Kickstarter, and who knows how well we'll have done by this point. Um, it's not something that Drew and I like need to go bananas. We just want to make sure that people who missed it on the first round get a chance like to me. get it. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like well, me. it. yeah, because like we that Kickstarter happened before Root had really blown up. So, like, it was very much like if you already knew about Pamir or were, like, on the very early adopters of Root, you might have been aware of the Kickstarter or, like, from John Company. And now that there's a lot more people interested in that product, we just want to make sure that they don't get shafted on the secondhand market. Because as much as it fills my heart with joy to see a copy on BGG for, like, $150, it's also (laughs) kind of a bummer because, like, that's too much money. And we we should be able to provide it cheaper than that. Um, And then... You know, um, my, my brother, Premier, has done so well that my brother left his job at the Chicago Botanic Garden and is now doing the game stuff full time. And so this little Kickstarter is like the way to make sure that he uh, is busy and has good work to do and kind of uh, we can keep directing resources to making these kinds of games. And so after the Premiere Kickstarter, we're basically going to hit print the moment the Kickstarter ends because all the files are already ready. And then we'll go back to working on John Company and hopefully have something to share in the summer. Cool.
0: So, Cole, curiously, I've, I've gotten to play John Company a couple of times. One of our listeners wanted to know, is there any changes that will be coming with the second edition of John Company, or is
3: it going to be the same? Uh, so, John Company has been an interesting development. I uh, People have been asking me about, like, if there'll be an upgrade kit. And I want to have there be an upgrade kit. But, in the, but I also, um, when I'm working on development, I like to use sledgehammers. And so I thought, okay. I'm going to leave the question of an upgrade kit open and just make it the best thing it can be. Um, So in the course of development, there have been some months when I've been like, oh God, everything is different. This is dramatically different. And then other months where actually the core design has proved to be pretty strong. And so there are some usability improvements. So the actual, uh, where I'm at right now, and who knows where I'll be in a month, but where I am right now is I think, uh, we probably will be able to do an upgrade kit of just a rule book and a deck of cards um, that will cover first edition owners. Because I know a lot of people paid a lot of money in the secondhand market for copies of John Company. Um, on the other hand, the physical production of the game will be totally different. That is definitely going to happen. Hmm. So one of the projects... So uh, both Premier 1 and John Company 1 and really Infamous Traffic, all of those... Um, product profiles uh they were determined by the way that phil or the way tom and mary did business so john company for instance uh the rule book was shortened four pages (laughs) um (laughs) because of weight um it had to be under a kilogram and it is like 99 grams or like (laughs) like like grams. it's like right on that it's like right on the edge Um, and uh, yeah I mean so and they're also like they were funny John company is is, it's like my little uh, it's a little miracle that it even happened because I was finishing that game while packing my house and while finishing my dissertation in the same frenzied month and I remember I, I had my good friend Chaz Threlkeld, who is the developer on the game. He I had I had left my family in the Midwest and I had gone down to Austin and he came with me and we worked on John company in the evenings and then we packed the house during the day <laughs> um, wow. and, then I, I, and I was writing and it was it was, a, it was crazy. And so uh, when it got to the end, I was not able to prepare the files for pre-press. And so I asked Karam who I'd worked with on several projects, if I could just give him a few hundred dollars for him to like finish the game. Uh, and by finish, I mean like pick the colors for the wood. Make sure all the files got through prepress, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. uh, because it just had to be done if it wanted to hit Essen. Um, and so he did that. The game got over, it got done. I was really happy. I thought it was it was received so well. I was so thankful for how it all turned out. Um, but when we were working on Premier, there was a question that kept kind of coming up for Drew and I, which was like, how does a game like a game should look like the way it should look? It should have a it should have room to breathe. So I think that I like small box games, but I think um, we shouldn't fetishize them. And so uh, the example like, like Greenland I think is actually very well suited by its uh, size and profile. Greenland is like a dice game. Mm -hmm. It it is, it's, it it fits its box beautifully. Um, I don't think PAX Renaissance does. I think PAX Renaissance should probably be in a little bit bigger box. It's more of an Epic game. It has a lot of funny components. Um, And uh, or or e- a, a even better one might be something like, um, oh, I kind of think about the name of this game. Um, I can't remember. Anyway, I, I, I won't throw any particular people down, down, <laughs> on, on the bus. I'm not meaning to, but just <laughs> the, um, in the desire to make a game small, it can lead you to some very cute design decisions, which are mostly good. But I also think that um, at least the way I play games, I want the game to be the proper size. And actually this can happen on both on both ends. Um I love the game Cthulhu Wars. I th- wish I wish to god that I could get a punch board version of it that <laughs> yeah. fit in a small shoebox because it's an awesome design and the physical production is so stupid. <laughs> and it, it, it bums me out because the game it's like almost embarrassing to play I'm like okay guys let's uh, we have to set up a second table just for the stuff that can't fit on the first table right. um, and so that always kind of bums me out so, I, so Drew and I were thinking about like look you know we want a good production it should be Easy to hold, easy to grab, easy to put in a backpack. Sure, yes, definitely. But also like the actual box should make it easy to set up the game, things like that. So a lot of the decisions around Premiere are about designing... Like thinking form first. And after we answered all these questions, we ended up something a little bit like the Avalon Hill bookcase edition as our project profile. So what I would like to do, one of the projects of Whirly Gig, is to take John Company and eventually Infamous Traffic and give them that same project profile because we think it lends itself to the game. Um now this means uh, we'll definitely have re- resin pieces for John Company. Uh, the board has been totally reimagined. It's much prettier now, um, wow. and it. Uh, I'm really, really proud of. It. In fact, it is killing me that I can't share it because I'm like we're in a Pax Premier moment. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to cross my marketing streams, but like yep. I have this gorgeous John Company board that I'm just sitting on. I'm so proud of. Um, so uh, the board will be different. Uh, In terms of the mechanisms, um, I had planned all these radical core changes. And what we found was that, like, actually the numbers in John Company are pretty resilient. With with, with Premier, when we were mucking around with the core systems, it was obvious that we could do better. Uh, With John Company, that that has not been true. We've made a lot of changes. We're like, oh, this sounds awesome. And then we play it and we're like, ah, the original way was better. So there'll be some changes to core systems, uh, many, many, many usability changes. And then uh, there are two areas where the game is getting pretty dramatically overhauled. Uh, One of them is the event system. I love the John Company event system, but it is a bear. It, uh, It halts the game to a stop. If you don't have an experienced player running it, it's almost unworkable. It produces very nice numbers. I love the math of the event system, and I think it's quite interesting, but we have found a way to fold it into an event deck. And if we can get the numbers to be pretty similar, we're gonna do it because it plays like 10 times faster. Um, So we're gonna probably swap that out. And then um, I am redeveloping the scenarios and the deregulated game. Uh, giving them a lot more development love and a lot more testing so that uh, they're gonna be a lot richer and better uh, in general. So I'm, I'm especially for a lot of people who well, what one of the things that bums me out about John Company a little bit is for me, the heart of that game is in the company under siege scenario and in the deregulated game. I love the deregulated game of John Company. It's my favorite part of the design. and no one plays it. <laughs> like even <laughs> even people who love John Company and play a lot of it have never played it. Because uh, the early game is is so hard. There's so much to do that you just run into like this kind of um, friction where it's like, well, I just, I I spent all this time learning this game. We're going to do the early company. We'll have a great time. We'll pack it up. Go. And I really want people to play the early game and be like, all right, sweet. Next time we play we're just going to like open box A and now we're playing with this added thing and then the next time what we play we'll open box B and now we're playing the full game because so much of John Company to me is in the company under siege scenario which basically what needs to happen is people need to play the early game then they need to play the deregulated game to understand how the company works when it doesn't have a monopoly and then they need to play the game that allows players the trigger to force the game into deregulation. So it's hard to have that trigger if players don't know what deregulation even looks like. So it's kind of like a three-step process to get to it. And so the new edition of John Company, we're trying really hard to like make the scenarios a lot more approachable and simpler so that it's very easy to like transition to those plays. Uh, and um, we are I'll, I'll say too that um, we're totally rebuilding the solo mode so that it's re- gonna be really good. The existing solo mode was like a formal experiment that is sometimes kind of interesting, but just is very different from what John Company is. And Drew has been developing a solo mode for the second edition of John Company that is pretty cool.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to that because I have not gotten to play it and uh, really want to sink my teeth into it. But right now, we'll say to the Punch Bunch listeners out there, you need to get in on this Kickstarter if you don't have PAX Premier. Obviously, if you listen to us, you have some of the same taste. So really, you should you should go out there and back because, man, we love this game. Very exciting. Thank you. Well, listen, since we've got you here, uh, Richie has a mailbag question. We thought it would be perfect for you to get in on it because we know that you play 18xx games. So uh, maybe you could help us out with this uh, mailbag question here.
2: So we got a, a email from Brian Parrish and at the very beginning of the email, Brian said a lot of nice things and we appreciate that. Uh, the actual question was, is that he, uh, since listening to us, he has his uh, interest in 18xx games uh, has increased and he is curious on what would be the the best game for his first 18xx game to get the best overall experience.
3: So my favorite first one, the one I always used to teach is 1889. Um, 1889 is in a small Island. I guess it's the third largest Island in Japan, I think. Uh, but it's, you know, it's an Island game. So the map is a little small. Um, but what, uh, there are a few, it has a few great virtues. So 1889, um, the map is smaller. Uh, the game is pretty free of Chrome. There's like not a lot of special rules. Mm-hmm. It is a pretty direct transcription of 1830s rules. So if you learn how to play 1889, you now also know how to play 1830. Um, and it takes three hours, three to four hours. When you get good at it, it takes two and a half. So it's on a little bit on the shorter side. And it is one of the rare beginner beginner 18xx games that is also great for experienced players I've played it about 30 times and I love it it's actually my favorite intro 18xx game and then probably tied with 1817 for just my favorite 18xx game wow um, cool. for a long time it was kind of hard to find um, you can buy it on the secondhand market but it actually is going to be getting a new edition um from grand trunk games and there's a there's a fabulous blog post that he wrote about trying to get acquire the license to the game but i would say tracked out a copy of 1889 that is the best one to start with um some people like 1846 as a starter um 1846 is a good game but to me it just doesn't have the openness of that that is my favorite part of the genre and so like treat yourself get 89 it's the best
1: Well, there you go, Brian. Hope that answered your question. Mm -hmm. Well, now is the uh, part in the episode where we get to the draft. So for for anybody who's a first time listener, Richie's going to explain how the draft works, but this draft is a special one. This is why we why we had to have Cole on cuz he's he's the expert at at this kind of stuff. He's, you know, he well, he's certainly the the most learned and well read among us, right? So, <laughs> so
0: that doesn't take a lot for me. Right. But okay, no, that's
1: <laughs> but uh, what we're do- what we're drafting this episode are games that made us want to learn more about a subject. Richie, will you kind of uh, kind of give the framework for our draft?
2: Definitely. So on Punchboard Paradise, we like unique lists, so that's why we draft. And it's just a serpentine draft, and all that means is that if you draft last in the first round, you will draft first in the second round. And uh, Cole, do you have a die near you by chance? Uh, I do not. Okay. Well, we're going to do it uh, this way. Since you're the guest, you will get to pick the draft order. Yeah, so between
1: you, Clef, Richie, and myself, Chad, you can kind of pick who goes first. And we're going to be drafting three.
3: Okay. Okay, so three at a time or three rounds? No, three.
2: Three total. Three
3: three total. total. Okay. As we go. All right, excellent. Um, So because I'm new to this and because I wanted to pick twice in a row, uh, (laughs) we'll do Chad, Clef, Richie, myself.
1: All right. Okay, excellent. All right, well, I'm going to start off obviously, I mean, it's not just uh it's not just fan service here, but the easy the easy one for me, I'm going to start off with Pax Premier because this was one of the first games to really do this. I after I played Pax Premier and you get out those cards and you start reading about the actual people I couldn't not I, I went to the library and I got I got a bunch of books on it. Now I couldn't get your source material because most of your source material, Cole, seemed like it was coming from some academic libraries and they were harder, harder to find. But I I did, like I said, I did really kind of get into it. I looked at I looked at uh, one of the big ones I read was Afghanistan, a cultural and political history by Thomas Barfield. And I mean, it was really fascinating to me. It was a lot of stuff that I just didn't know. So I was so happy to dive into that.
2: So PAX Premier is my first pick. I guess our fans would not know this since we don't have any uh, uncensored... uh or unedited uh, episodes out there, but the, our, for our review of PAX, there was originally supposed to be a kind of intro with Chad kind of going into the history of it, but he went on for about <laughs> 20, 30 minutes, and we we're like, we have to get to the review. So. I droned, <laughs> yeah,
1: so anyway, that's that's my first pick.
0: Okay, so um, now I'm going to say before I kind of start to do this draft, this, this is a little bit more of a difficult draft for me. For me, I'm more of a you know, mechanism type of Euroe type of player. So I don't necessarily, when I play a game, think, ooh, you know, what happened in this period of time or anything like that. So a little bit more difficult, but I think I've come up with a few. And the first one, uh, one that I just recently uh, just came out at uh, Gen Con this last year was Watergate. When certainly I played Watergate, the, for one thing, the rule book itself has a lot of great information and stuff in there, which was really cool to read. And that's a, period of time in history that you know i find fascinating so it certainly made me want to know more about it so um yeah i mean uh you know watergate i think is a great game and you know definitely i think brings out that uh, the feelings of you know wanting to know more about it
1: any of those card driven games are really great for that so
0: yeah absolutely so yeah okay. so that's my first pick and, uh, watergate you know,
3: i'll just oh it's excellent it's a great game more people should play it
0: yeah
2: all right. So for my first pick, I'm going with Tulip Bubble. When uh, this topic first came up, that was the one that jumped uh, into my mind. Uh, it is kind of like an auction bidding game, but it's all based around Tulip Mania. I mean, they, they consider it kind of the first speculative bubble uh, to burst. And in the Netherlands, they just kind of went crazy on tulips. And uh, the one story that always uh, stands out to me when I think of this subject is that <laughs> there was a, a guy who was... He accidentally ate a tulip bulb on his lunch break thinking that it was an onion. <laughs> and he ended up like getting sued and put like put in prison over it just because the price of it was so uh, expensive. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but, <laughs> wow, I didn't even realize that. So yeah, anytime I you know complain any little you know, first world complaints, I'm just happy I'm not sitting down to an onion for lunch and not realizing that I'm eating a, a flour <laughs> ball. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. uh, but Don't
3: the game eat it's an egg. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> uh, the game itself is it's a good game. I, I wouldn't say that it's you know the best auction bidding game out there Probably it gets a little samey after a little bit just because the the character or the uh, the fulfillments that you are completing never change or anything like that but it's definitely worth checking out and that is tulip bubble all right cool it's to you you get the uh first and second
1: pick right around all the
3: right. horn so i have let's see um so i it's funny whenever i i definitely, in my past would use games as a way of learning about a thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first time I think this happened in a really big way was with Martin Wallace's God's playground, which I didn't know anything about Polish history. And I went and, uh, went to the library and checked out a copy of Norman Davies's God's Playground, which is the uh, the book that the game is based on. And for about a month was totally obsessed with Polish history um, because <laughs> cool. of that game. And in fact, my obsession with Polish history far outlasted my obsession with God's Playground, the game. Um, <laughs> uh, and then the, the next one is uh, Successors, which uh, the um, Berg Sim- Simonich um, uh, car driven game uh by Avalon Hill, originally republished by GMT, soon to be republished again by Phalanx, uh, which, if, if you don't know it, is uh, a completely bananas car-driven war game uh, that prefigures a lot of the kind of like multi-victory condition stuff that I'm so interested in. Uh, basically, Alexander's dead. You've got to you've got to sort through things, and uh, you can win the game by being seeming the most legitimate ruler or just by sheer force. And to seem, you know, the, the, sheer force victory path is pretty obvious, just own a bunch of territory, but the legitimacy one is hilarious. It's all about getting the funeral pie, you know, uh, cart back to, uh, Mesopotamia or not Mesopotamia to back to Macedonia. And then, you know, playing a hot potato with the various heirs, um, heir apparent's Uh, And it is a riot. And after I uh, got into Successors, I read Peter Green's uh, amazing biography of Alexander and then also his book, um, Alexander to Actium, about the Successor Wars. So great, great, great books. Um, Those are my picks.
1: Cool. That's Successor, you said? Yeah, Successors. Okay.
2: Great. All right. So for my next one, it's going to be the downfall of... Pompeii (laughs) and I've I've talked about this game recently in a a different episode but I I mean I'm just very interested in the 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 fact that I mean one once the uh, Mount Vesuvius blew and you know just leveled the city with volcanic ash uh, I mean that basically preserved the city and obviously if if you've looked it up and seen the pictures I mean you can see people laying on the streets. you can see I mean everything is basically undisturbed and this was just an event that I think they said as far as the Eruption. It, it was basically kind of equal to um, uh, Mount St. Helen when that blew mm-hmm. uh, in the '80s. So it's not necessarily that it was a you know a, a crazy eruption. And I think overall, two thousand people in Pompeii died. Outside of it was like sixteen thousand. One of the curious things, and we, every time we play this, we always talk about is it, like how <laughs> basically like how long it. <laughs> Cause this is not a game where you're playing and you're thinking about it in a somber way. Like right. you are playing, you're trying to cut off people. You're trying to get their people stuck in, in surrounded in the lava and just can't, can imagine like a, a modern tragic uh, <laughs> event being turned into a board game for fun and no one saying anything about it, but distance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but overall it's a fun little family weight game. If you haven't checked it out and that is the downfall of Pompeii.
0: All right. Good, good pick. Now, Cole, sometimes when we do these drafts, sometimes we pick games maybe that we like, but we know somebody else is going to pick it and we try to steal it from them. (laughs) So as my second game that I, you know, certainly was interested in how this came about and and what happened here. I smell BS. I'm going to go... With Liz Boa. I knew that was coming. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe just Chad's second favorite game of all time, but, you know, hey. Uh, But, no, it – obviously the game has a lot of thematic you know interesting things going on in the game talking about you know the which was interesting to me i mean that they went through the flood and an earthquake and a fire and all that amount of time certainly something very um you know thought provoking of you know how how they rebuilt a city after going through all that so uh yeah so definitely a game that would you know make me want to do more you know, looking into it. So yeah, for my pick would be uh, Lisboa.
1: Well, and that's a good one. Yeah. I mean, I actually, it, it's interesting because of the enlightenment too and how that influenced rebuilding the city. And so, yeah, I, I love all the little thematic historical touches that uh, Vital put in that game. So that's, that's one of the reasons I enjoy that, uh, that particular Euro game.
2: All right. Good pick. <laughs> I mean, right. I'm excited for your explanation for your third pick. <laughs> I know, right? Here we go. Okay. All right. So
1: then I get the double pick coming around the the horn here this time. So this next pick is is more about a time period. And Richie and I, it's one of our favorite meme games. Uh, but this game is Tammany Hall. And when I first played this, it made me go back to my high school history where we talked about Boss Tweed and... You know, the political machinations of that area and five points and all that. And that also drew me to go back to uh, this because it's the same sort of time period around that time period uh, as Scorsese's film uh, Gangs of New York with the Bowery Boys and all that kind of stuff and the political things that were going on then. And uh, I went back and I actually I actually read uh, Herbert Asbury's book by the same title the gangs of new york and so uh, that's that's a game that obviously it's really mean you can really get into the backstabbiness but i appreciate knowing the the history that goes on there in the background so gangs of new york is my second pick or excuse me (laughs) that's that's the movie there buddy i know we can grab movies (laughs) there you go all right and my last pick is something that's a little bit different we don't Always uh, we don't talk about family games as much on on the podcast, but a game that I played with my family and my son and I got really interested and went back and looked up some of the stuff on it is is Jamaica, actually. And uh, we went because you can choose to play uh, different pirates in that game. And my son, Finn, and I were really interested because of the relationships between the pirate that it talks about in the brief brief history overview there's uh, Mary Reed and Anne Bonny and basically they they sort they joined John Rackham's pirate crew there in that time period. And and uh, it was just kind of interesting because my, my son kind of wanted to know more about the story. So we, we looked it up together. We found out that, you know, uh, Mary Reed actually, she dressed as a boy to get her inheritance early on. So that was kind of an interesting tidbit. And then they all got captured, along with John Rackham's crew, I think. They all got captured and John Rackham was killed but they kind of had their sentences deferred because they claimed to be pregnant. And so they were able to delay it but uh, it still wasn't a good end for them but anyway jamaica was uh was one i thought of when we did this draft so jamaica's my final pick
0: oh it means i still gotta pick one more well i'm gonna go with a game that uh that i recently have played here that i really enjoyed at least the has, has a lot of uh inventions and historical figures. I mean, some of them are are make-believe, I guess, but um, still made me interested in some of how how things were going at this time. And that's going to be Crystal Palace um, because it's really based upon the 1853 World's Fair in London and at a time where, you know, lots of different inventors were making all kinds of crazy contraptions and all kind of different things that were, you know, just looked upon as like crazy, far fetched ideas. And so it's kind of a cool in the game. They've got all these different things. And like I said, the characters, some of them are Sherlock Holmes, which obviously is a you know fake character, but there's still a lot lots of real life characters in there and i think that that's a really does a good job of at least bringing that feeling of that time and i think that would be you know an interesting would love to go back to that period of time and be able to see you know some of those inventions and what they were doing that that would be just a cool time to visit i think so so yeah so my number 3 is going to be you know a nice good old euro crystal palace yeah that's
3: <laughs> a respect- I'm, I'm impressed that's a respectable play. Yeah, that's good. Right. i really want to play it because I, I love the the 1850s is near and dear to my heart and i have not had a chance to play it yet
1: Oh, I think huh. you'd like the dice drafting yeah. uh, the, the way that that works, or not drafting. No, not I'd drafting. say the the way that you set the dice for your economy, and and you have to pay for each pip, and that's that's kind of an interesting decision.
0: And it's actually very uh, player interactive, where you have to choose spots with your different dice, and yeah, it's it's really good.
3: Oh yeah, I'm excited, and I and I, I just I like Clay and all the stuff he's doing at Capstone, so. Yeah, we're big fans, too. Yeah. Um, okay, so for my last pick, uh, I'm going to go oh, with... Oh, I got... Oh, oh, no, no, oh no. Richie <laughs> might <laughs> cut you off, you know. Yeah, so yeah, he knows just skip somebody. Richie. and oh. oh, no, you're Obscure good. i take mine. No,
2: I don't think you have to worry, because uh, I've gotten to the part in my list where I'm doing a little uh, little dancing to, <laughs> <get> this, right. <laughs> to, to pick this one. Uh, so I'm going to go with Newsfeared. Okay. And so anytime that we play a game that's, you know, based around a city or a name, Jessica always looks up because she wants to... She loves to travel. She's looking for a new place to go. So she looked up Newsford. It's just a fishing village in Norway. <laughs> Not very exciting. <laughs> so then she started looking at places around it. And there is like four hours away. There's a, a little like a puffin island that you can go to. So then, th- and this is just all the, the internet hole that we got into. But I ended up on a YouTube video of Andrew Zimmerman from Bizarre Food. I actually think he's a Minnesota native. Okay. But he was on a Puffin Island, a different Puffin Island somewhere else, and they were hunting puffins. And I tell you what, the puffin meat looked delicious. And the meal, usually when I watch Bizarre Food, I'm not interested in what he's eating because usually he's drinking blood or rotten food or something like that. Yeah. (laughs) This. I'm into and once again, like I said, I'm doing a little dancing on newsfeed as my pick. But now I want to eat puffins. It because, made you want to eat it. puffins. <laughs> okay, wow. So all that right. is my last pick, newsfeed. <laughs> okay, <laughs> cool follow <Yeah>. that up.
3: <laughs> yeah, boy, I.
0: <laughs> this is he he didn't steal yours, did he? Now no, <laughs>
3: such a tame answer. Um, so my last pick. I mean, I could say this for all of Phil's games, but uh, the, the kind of odd one. So the, the, and this to me is like, look, if I start playing a game and reading a history book about it that's like the, the norm for me this i feel very i could draft all day this is a very comfortable <laughs> draft <laughs> for yeah so i'm gonna pick a weird one all right cool is, but it's a fill a fill game uh bios genesis i uh am not a scientist i uh mostly read fantasy novels through all of my high school science courses uh but m- my family is filled with them and i uh i liked phil's work and i was curious about bios Genesis. i picked up a copy of it and was just so compelled by it and and i it was taught to me by um i, I played it with my brother and with uh with a guy named ryan Sp- spangler the designer of soul who is um i think he's a microbiologist he like he he knows this area very well um and they were kind of explaining things as we were playing of like how how this how this cool, like, oh, this is how an enzyme works and all these things that I didn't really understand. Um, and so after that game, I went and got a copy. I can't remember the name of the author, but the book's called The Vital Question and started trying to teach myself just enough, just barely enough biology and chemistry to understand some of the arguments about the origin of life and just kind of gave myself a little, a little crash course in it. And it was wonderful. And I just, uh, it was a great, a great moment where, you know, a game by a designer I really respect was leading me to read about something that was totally outside of my comfort zone. And I read that book, The Vital Question, very, very slowly and tried to take good notes, uh, but it was a <laughs> wonderful experience. And I just, you know, if, if you, to people out there who happen to be, um, you know, if you're a big history li- uh, student, you know, like picking up a, a book by a scientist is, is a good thing. And I, I recommend that more people do it. Awesome. Wow. So
0: uh, I've been interested in playing uh, one of the bio type of games. So I'd be real interested in that.
3: The the new one bios origins is awesome. It's That's the fun. one to
1: get it. Now is the rule is the rule book easy to get into? Do you know? I mean, cause it's, you said you were taught or
3: yeah. So Genesis, I, Man, all three of those rule books are tough. Okay. All three of them. Well, they're just like, they're not, they're arrayed in a way that kind of makes sense, but not in a way that was like, they never went through a usability trial with them. They would have arranged that rule book totally differently, Mm -hmm. Um, which is a bummer because the actual designs are quite elegant and good. I mean, like BIOS Genesis, I mean, BIOS Origins has like, I'll say Bios Origins and uh, Bios Megafauna. Very, I mean, especially Megafauna. Very elegant design. Very cool, Mm. interesting design. Bios Origins is, I think, it's my favorite of the lot. Just because you've just never seen a game do what it does. It has like such big brain scope of like how all the systems like interrelate, and it just tells such a story. Um, Cool. And I think like and it's you know it won't be in print forever, people should snatch it up, but like it's really, really good. The rule book takes some time, and then most comically, the game includes this player aid with maybe like th- there are 30 actions in the game, which is a horrifying number. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but worse still, every action has a unique icon. Oh boy. Um and then they're arranged on the player aid in alphabetical order. <laughs> so oh, wow. you're like, okay, the little spears. What is that? <laughs> and you're like trying to look through this like, this Rosetta Stone. And so if you do get it, <laughs> the best advice I can give you is two prong. The first prong is you don't need to know it all. Just start playing. Like You need to know like six actions for the start of the game. And then as the game changes, you get a couple more actions. And mostly the actions are similar to one another. So, like, you know, from a development standpoint, I would have been like, Phil, you could have cut that down to 10 actions. (laughs) Um, But so, like, one, don't be afraid. And two, go to BGG and download the Rosetta Zone that some kind player reorganized into categories. <laughs> because it will just make your life way easier.
2: Yeah. I right. I would say BGG, I got, I picked up emancipation, uh, Pax Emancipation and that was a savior as far as the rule book. Just just one the rule book's tiny in that mm-hmm. to read, but there's a lot of stuff in there and it, it does help when people kind of break it down.
0: Yeah, we just did the same. We just started playing Pax Renaissance just about a week ago and boy oh, boy, that's that's tough rule book, but the BGG help, you know, helps out a lot with those
3: and Which right is a good example of like when you get a handle on it it's not even so bad. it's just the right the, the, yeah. the learning curve on it is just a brick wall. And I and I, I love Renaissance, especially as a two-player game. I think it's fabulous.
1: Which Cole, I should say, that's an interesting idea because you had talked about previously. Kind of okay. So for those that were wowed by Premier or interested in Premier, I'm interested to see how this is an in to the pack series and if people stay. So you, you got two people right here talking about Premier being their first entryway in, and they've already. You know they've already dabbled in the other games in the series,
3: so so there you go. There, yeah. All right. Well, I, I'll pat myself on the back for that. <laughs> there you go. I think yes. the, the, the the Pax games to me are just super special. I mean, when I was a really early adopter because Austin had a Phil Eklund scene, and so I had played like Lords of the Spanish Main before Paphiriana came out, and was pumped about it because it was like, hey, did you hear that he turned this massive board game into a card game? And then I don't think anybody expected it to be as brilliant and as good as it is. Um, because it's just you, uh, if you want, it's like you just get the most, it's the most undiluted, the most history per square inch um, just in those games. And all the PAXs excel at that. Like even Emancipation is the one that I am most iffy on just because it is so deeply weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's still pretty cool. And, and many of them are just like when they're not, completely excellent and genre defining uh, they're still really interesting Um, and I like I've been really enjoying uh, transhumanity a lot it's like one of my favorite sci-fi games ever made it's great
1: well I want to say this has been an absolute blast having you on. It's been fun to hang out and talk. And I, I do want to say thanks for making the podcast at least probably 12% more intelligent today. So that helps as well. I think it's a higher percentage. Uh, yeah, probably. Uh, yeah. Much <laughs> higher percentage. <laughs> but uh, uh, just to remind our listeners, the the Kickstarter for PAX Premier 2nd Ed- edition drops on March 10th. And that should be out for at least... Well, we are going to release
0: this dropping after. on the 16th yeah so
3: it'll be it, it, the kickstarter started march 10th i think we're running till the end of the month it's about a three-week campaign perfect so
1: yes i'd tell our listeners definitely go check that out also uh for our listeners when we, whenever we do the draft you can vote on our bgg guild at three two two seven as to who did it best so i'm, I'm feeling like Cole will get a lot of votes for this one, probably. Yeah, it's pretty. It's,
3: it's possibility. I don't yes. know. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm not trying puffin meat. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's
1: right. Well, Cole, again, thanks. If people want to want to get a hold of you or or ask rules questions or just say hey, thanks for making these great games, is there a place that uh, they can do that?
3: Uh, so Twitter is probably the best place. My DMs are open. You can just send me a message. Okay. You can great. Me a, at Cole Worley, um, it's not hard to find.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today, Cole. Yeah, thanks, right. Cole.
3: My pleasure. Thank you, guys.
2: Well, fellows, my wish list has now expanded. After that,
1: right? After <laughs> that interview. I, I just, I actually just bought some games just based on the things he was talking about.
2: Just, I mean, just, just right
1: now, you yeah, got on the phone, right like
0: boom. I'm like, I'm ordering. Yeah. So Richie you you
2: you ordered what? I picked up what? the first contact. I I'm excited to try it. I don't know if I'm smart enough to play it though. But <laughs> <laughs> we're going to give it a shot. All right? I am pretty excited to
1: uh to play Bios Origins now. I was kind of intimidated, but he convinced me. Honestly, I think Cole can kinda of talk me into anything. you yeah, just kinda of listen to the way he talks about games yeah. and stuff and I'm, I'm
0: He's, yeah, I could hear I could listen to him talk
1: about that stuff all day.
0: I'm telling you, man. You guys should cut me out and get him on the podcast. Your guys' intelligent ratings would go up by about a million percent. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Well maybe that's a Patreon goal. Hey, whoa, wait, wait, hold on. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> well,
1: listen, hopefully you y'all enjoyed this interview out in punch punch land in this episode one little bit of business we will not be releasing another episode for three weeks given that we've done some back-to-back episodes and just with timing and schedule so you hopefully have gotten your fill of us here quick in quick succession next Episode will be a review of Capstone's Cooper Island. So look forward to that. And in the meantime, thanks for joining us on the guild, in the Slack channel, and all over social media. Everybody, have a great week. All right, everybody, have a good night. Thanks for listening. Punchboard Paradise would like to thank our loyal listeners as well as the publishers and designers that have provided review copies. You can find us at punchboardparadise at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at punchboarders. We are on Instagram at Punchboard Paradise and Facebook at Punchboard Paradise.